on this episode of AV Week, we talk about patents in the AV industry, what it means to be green AV, and who owns the control code. All that and more, next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 380, recorded Friday, December 7th, 2018. Citizens of Earth. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Christie Digital and by FSR. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. With us to discuss the news and information we have gathered this week, first and foremost, his name is Jeremy Caldera, and he is from IES Technology. How are you, sir? I am well. How are you? I am good. I am good. Happy Friday. Yeah, you too. Uh, also with us is uh, a, a guy that I like because his name's Tim. Uh, his name is Tim Trost, <laughs> and he's from Milestone and LeGrand AV. Welcome, sir. Well, hello, Tim. Uh, and last but not least, I have been trying to get this guy on forever and a day. I uh, met him for the first time a little over a year ago. Very nice gentleman. His name is Dan Friese, uh, and he is the relatively new uh, editor of Sound and Communications Magazine. Welcome, sir. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right, guys, our first story here comes to us from uh, AV Network and, and SCN, talking about QSC's newest patent. Uh, QSC was award, awarded U.S. patent. This is not going to be a test uh, at the the end. For for the ability to bring an an IP camera stream to the USB video class of soft codec applications such as Zoom, GoToMeeting, and others. The patent does not specify that this is from uh, from a QSIS system specifically, but indicates it is a broader reaching IP camera stream to USB video insert. Uh, this allows QSC and others, if they want to license the technology, uh, to take in multiple video streams and select which stream to send them uh, to the soft codecs. Uh, Jeremy, I want to start with you on this. Uh, what is this going to mean for QSCs and others moving forward to get this technology and get it into a patent form where they're putting kind of a stake in the ground saying, you know, this is something that we want to start doing? Uh, as soon as you sent me this article to read, I was very happy to see it, right? I mean, I'm, I, I hate running all these cables to these conference room tables and having to use these, use these, whether it's an IP to USB bridge or some kind of USB extension or something like that. And it's another cable that's got to be plugged into the laptop. Uh, this is going to eliminate that. And it's going to make it cleaner. It's going to make it friendlier. It's going to just be all around great. And just for that reason alone, I'm really excited about this. Do you think it's going to help in, in the design spec as well, where you're, as a designer and as an integrator, you're able to kind of call out, you know what, here's just basically video drops? Uh, yeah, it, it could help with that. It, I mean, where it's going to complicate things is, is, you know, ensuring certain things are on the network and set up properly, correct? I mean, that's a problem we have now just inherently with everything else uh, in our world. And there's still a lot of companies out there that are isolating the AV systems on a separate network. So, I mean, I've done some systems where the QSC camera, for example, would be on the AV network, but then their computer is on their own corporate network and the bridge is that is the bridge between, right? So this is going to help with, you know, solidifying all of that onto one network, but it's going to add some complexity um, to the integration with the IT departments, 
but um, you know, it's give and take one way or the other. So I, I like it. I like it as a designer. Yeah. Uh, Tim Middle Atlantic uh, is the owner of a handful of, of their own uh, patents. Yes. I, I mentioned how, what's this going to take to do for, you know, not just QSC, but other companies as well. When you guys work with other companies that may or may not be interested in licensing your technology, how does that process work exactly? Yeah, typically there's a, a negotiation that goes on to understand how important or relevant the patent is. And you could even discuss this more broadly than patents and just the, the intellectual property of a particular manufacturer and, and whether partnering makes sense, licensing makes sense, and what that business agreement is. Um, we have not chosen to license any of our patents, but across the broader Legrand family, we do leverage our collective um, intellectual property in, in many products. Um, it makes this all better, it delivers better end solutions to the market, to the customers, reduces the cost of innovation, and therefore gets better products into the marketplace at more competitive pricing. You mentioned intellectual, intellectual properties you know, across the, the Legrand AV brand. Specifically, though, you're talking about internally to, to your guys' group. Legrand AV, Legrand North America, Legrand Globally, we leverage the technology and the assets that exist within the portfolio as much as possible. When you do that, though, because, yes, technically you guys are all over you know, under, under the Legrand brand. Is that something where it's, you know, engineers getting together in, in a room or in a video conference and saying, you know, this is what we have and this is kind of how you can leverage it? Yeah, it's really cool. We, uh, we get together a couple times a year to review some of those assets, understand the development projects that are underway within all the brands and the business units, um, and regularly an engineer in an adjacent or sometimes non-adjacent um, industry or, or market will say they've got a little nugget for that. We ran into that most recently with our DC distribution products where we had no idea there was some intellectual property that existed in part of our building controls um, hmm. business. And so we're able to take some of those parts and pieces and bring them into the AV industry, give the AV industry a better solution, and again, at a more competitive price point. No, that's really cool. Uh, Dan, this, this patent was filed uh, January of 2016, so darn near three years ago now. Mm -hmm. Is nobody else doing that? I mean, I, I know that sounds like a silly question, but is nobody else doing this? that where, where QSC could legitimately say, you know, this is, this is something that we've created that's new and unique? It certainly seems like, I, I can't necessarily say that no one else is doing this, but it definitely seems like QSC is at the absolute cutting edge of this. I recently had a call with uh, Patrick Hayne over there, and he basically said as far as QSC systems goes, they view themselves primarily as transitioning to being a software company. That's what they aspire to be at this point. And obviously they have their three different divisions. They have the cinema division, they have the pro division that covers live sound, they have the systems division. But he said aspirationally they're looking at you know, becoming a software company, which is amazing considering that for all the years I've been in AV, even before my editorship of sound and communications, you think of QSC with their amps, with their speakers, with their mixers. To now define themselves as aspiring to be a software company and with QSIS becoming more and more ubiquitous and just you know more and more releases, more and more developments. Um, it's really an exciting time. So whether they're alone in the field, I can't say that, but they certainly seem to be at the forefront. Well, I want to drill down a little bit on what you said about them becoming a, a software company. I don't know about you, and I ask you this specifically, is this is, they're, they're, they're not unique though in that, in as far as the AV companies that, that you and I both cover. 
a lot of companies are, are saying, you know what, yes, we still make boxes. Yes, we make, still make parts and pieces, but we're leading with software. Are you finding that more and more? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about the no-box solution. They're talking about moving away from hardware, and obviously that aligns with an overall shift toward increased simplicity and overall shift toward IT-centricness. Um, it just seems like we're evolving beyond the box to a large extent. And whether it's Utelogy or whether it's QSC, um, companies are leading with software by and large. All right, Jimmy, last question. I want to bring you in on this real quickly. What does that then do to integrators if, if AV companies are leading with software? Yeah, that makes it complicated. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time. For me, it, it comes down to, well, now it's, it's service. I mean, we're still going to have to sell a display, but you're getting rid of everything else, right? And then displays, there's zero margin to make on selling displays. So uh, it really comes down to, uh, I think, a, a doubling down investment in your people and and perhaps the services that you provide as, as an integration company, right? Um, there's, there's so much more that we can do with SLA contracts, I think, that are going to become more and more important to just operability and maintenance and and just ensuring that that experience is, is maintained at all these organizations. And I'm, that's, you know, if, if it's going without equipment in one direction, that's how it's going to be in the other direction. Right. Just, just to tag on to what Jeremy said, though, you know, I think as much as companies are integrating software into some more traditional systems leading with softwares, there, there's more and more subsystems that'll want to be controlled. So whether or not, you know, everything goes into the display, we could talk about just the simple AV system that's enabling us to have this podcast right now, but then start to tie it into lighting control, HVAC, room occupancy, and, you know, and then, and then ultimately energy efficiency within the spaces when they're occupied or unoccupied. So there, there's always going to be, from my perspective, more work to do to stay on the edge and ahead of the competitors, albeit the, the centralization or consolidation of, of many disparate systems. It's the expansion of what, what your product offering and what your service offering has to be, right? That's why I'm saying it's doubling down on investment of your people to do that. And I mean, and we're still always going to have the larger specialized rooms that have tons of hardware and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the everyday stuff's going to start to go away and, and you know, dwindle, dwindle, dwindle down to that software-only type application. So. Absolutely. All right, guys, our next, our next story comes to us, uh, a guest, actually a guest blog in AV Magazine about green AV. Walter Bonte from Barco writes about the company's efforts, Barco's efforts, in creating a green AV business environment. Bonte writes that Barco helps their quote-unquote live events partners reduce their carbon put, footprint by designing more energy-efficient video solutions, end quote. Uh, Bonte goes on to explain that Barco not only produces green AV products, they also invest in green AV, uh, green manufacturing models. Tim, I want to start with you as, as the manufacturer on here. Do integrators, and, uh, and honestly, by extension, customers, their clients, care about the green process and care about green products or care about how green you are in your manufacturing processes? Yeah, um, I'd say we see it more and more from a specification standpoint. It's becoming uh, more frequent that there's compliance, especially as we all know, government contracts. California is a heavy influence um, on on the requirements, especially with like Prop 65 and, and labeling and and components within. Um, you know, I would have said five years ago when I'll use the uh, Avixa formerly Infocom energy management standard uh, was, was introduced, wasn't really well recepted, received, um, 
more recently though, it's, it's becoming um, more requested from us to be able to provide energy consumption in the product or in the AV system. And so monitoring and management of an AV system will help lead to lead certification. Um, most of what we do helps contribute to lead certification, um, won't give you certification. It's not a significant enough component of uh, natural resource utilization. So you have on that side, designing products as Barco has done um, to, to be more energy efficient, but then also in the actual product itself, the components that, that take place, uh, Rojas requirements, for example, and, 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 um, and then within the packaging, ensuring recyclability. You know, integrators don't want to sit around and have to sort garbage and, and you know, packaging material, what's recyclable, what's not recyclable. So choosing to go the path of recyclability um, and green just makes the whole experience better and obviously is, is better for the world. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, with, with the companies that you cover and the integrators that you talk to, are, are you finding that this is becoming more and more uh, of an ask, uh, more and more of a requirement from integrators? I have to say that in terms of the conversations I've had, the projects that we've profiled, the POVs and op-eds that we've solicited, it doesn't seem to be top of mind from the integrators and the end-user clients I've spoken to. But having read the blog, there are a lot of different tentacles, so to speak, of this that I think should be thought about, whether it's minimizing weight and bulkiness as far as transport costs, whether it's recyclability, whether it's trade-in programs, so that different components can be reused or refurbished for existing installations. It isn't something I've heard a tremendous amount about, but I see the value proposition as being very, very persuasive. So I think it perhaps is something that we as thought leaders, and, and Barco in this case as being a thought leader, should try to be an expositor of and try to defend the, uh, the importance of it, because it is not something I hear a tremendous about, amount about day to day. Jeremy, when it comes to figuring out what products you're going to use, and yes, you, you are a dealer of, and you have relationships with, with, with manufacturers, but when you're looking at maybe bringing on somebody new and maybe they have uh, you know, a, a system in place, uh, like the Atlantic where, you know, they, they have, you know, their processes are, are you know, green and, and they do things like that and they can give you certifications for that. Or, you know, the products are, you know, Energy Star compliant or they, they use less energy. What's the biggest factor in, in considering maybe bringing on a, a, new, a, new, a new company or a new product or, you know, when you're trying to get an energy efficient um, system design to, to add to LEED certification? Um. I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I have not had to do much of that. Even my large clients, they really don't care. And I hate to be so frank about it. They just don't, right? And I've had some larger clients who have had lead certification for their buildings, things like that. And we have talked to them about how do we, you know, bring the EAV systems into this and how do we discuss all this? And it ultimately came down to, well, there's not enough there to care, right? We don't even want to handle the paperwork because everything else will get us lead certified. So we don't, you know, do whatever you need to do, right? So for me, when I'm talking about vendors, I mean, I, I like the idea of Energy Star amplifiers now that will shut down when there's no signal after so much time because not enough to put a sequencer in place, right? So it's just, just overall, just the way I think about how I do my designs and how that you know, type of, uh, you know, green business or energy efficient type stuff is, is working in, in, in that realm, right? Where I haven't had to go down the lead pathway as of yet. Um, and, you know, we've done some whole building systems too, where I was ready to jump through the hoops for the lead certification. And they just said, don't even worry about it. You know, just give us the information. If we need it, we need it. If we don't, we don't. And then I just, it never went any further, which was very surprising to me. Um, I mean, I, 
it's not top of mind for myself either because my clients aren't asking for it. Um, that's not to say that it, it shouldn't be considered. Like I said, I take, the, I take considerations for, you know, just other aspects of the design, like I said, but you know, maybe as, as a good person of earth, we need to do that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, th I think that that's right. I think it is something that we should be talking more about and thinking more about, you know, when we profile, whether it's government facilities, corporate facilities, entertainment facilities, yeah. um, as you know, we explore a 360 degree angle and very few of them do we find people proactively talking about the energy efficiency, um, steps that they've taken or the ways that they've tried to minimize transportation overhead. Um, I don't hear it that much, but it probably should be something we as citizens of Earth and as members of the industry should be thinking about more often. I, and I feel like, you know, I mean, listen, I'm not someone who's going to quote numbers on this, but just a gut feeling of, of mine says that any energy efficiency that I do in a system design could be immediately negated by uh, the carbon offset of the shipping, if it's not shipped right, <laughs> you know, or as a group, right? I mean, it's, I don't know if those numbers are true or not, but I feel like, you know, taking consideration from end to end is, is important, but, um, you know, you know, how do we do that? How do we manage that? And where is that going to go going forward? I, th I think we're going to see it a lot more. I think it's going to be more pushed down government mandated type stuff. Like we're seeing that in a lot of the bills that are passed and the lead certifications and all that kind of thing that we have to start considering that. And that's what's ultimately going to drive this because I'll be honest with you, I don't feel like the customers will. The other place too is in air quality, right? So in, in the, some of the materials being used, especially on the wood side, um, green guard certification becomes important, important in education and such. So um, we talked a lot about energy management, but air quality is, is definitely an important one in, uh, in buildings. Right, very good. Uh, last story here uh, comes to us from Sound of Communications and writer Douglas Cleaver uh, about who owns the code. <clears throat> now, for those of you who have only started listening to Aviation, uh, this is a reminder. I am a recovering control systems programmer. Recovering. Uh, um, Douglas makes a really good point in his fir very first line, quote unquote, I thought this issue was resolved years, years ago, as did I, Douglas, as did I. So we're going to go through this. Um, Klieger goes on in, in, his, in his blog to write about, uh, describe a situation a fellow consultant kind of relayed to him. The system was less than a year old. Uh, it didn't work, never worked, quote unquote. Client wasn't happy. One of the biggest issues though was the control system never worked the way it was designed. Client was looking to get another contractor, another integrator to, in to fix the system, but lacked the uncompiled code. Really quick aside, in control systems, there is a compiled code and uncompiled code. Compiled code is something that you can, you know, you shoot somebody once the system is done, uh, but you cannot edit it by and large. Uh, uncompiled code is the, is the editable version of, of the control systems code. Um, Douglas uh, contacted a friend of his at the original integrator inquiring about getting the code and was told categorically, no, we don't do that. Real quickly, my first instance into my entrance into the AV industry was as a technology manager at a small community college in Southwest Illinois, just outside of St. Louis. Two months on the job, two months on the job, we had a system that we had to have repaired. And again, I, I didn't know the word Crestron, Extron, Middle, anything, right? I came from broadcasting, kind of dropped into this. And we had to have a, 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 we had to have a projector replaced, actually, was what it was got the bill back for, for having it done. The, the cost to 
adjust the code was more than the cost of the projector. I'm not going to tell you how much it was nor who the integrator was. But that, that experience actually led me to become a control systems programmer because I thought it was astronomical. I thought it was outrageous that I had to pay so much to adjust the code. And here's the thing that really gets me still to this day, some, you know, years later, I know how much work it took to adjust that code. You know, <laughs> just, I, it was, it was 10 minutes worth of work. Um, and, and so that's what still gets me about this conversation. Uh, Steve Greenblatt and our guys over at State of Control have done episodes on this. I, people have written about this for years. Uh, Josh Schrager, our buddy who is actually on his way to become a lawyer neck right now, um, it has talked about this and the, the differences between intellectual properties and what's, what exactly is, is, you know, the, the real ownership of this and intellectual property is actually one of the things that folks who don't give up their code, uh, stand on. Like this is, this is something that we made. Um, obviously my opinion, if you haven't gathered by now is that yes, the client owns the code cause it's a work for hire, but that that's as much as I'll go on that. Uh, Dan, I'm going to start with you cause it's, it's from your, your magazine. Mm-hmm. Simple question. Who do you think owns the code? Um, yeah, I, I try not to editorialize too much, but I am, uh, <laughs> I am inclined to agree. This article then. I, I'm inclined to agree with Douglas. Now, I do want to say, though, um, he received two pieces of feedback, which he forwarded to me. Um, and I just kind of want to bring up to the group for their opinion. Um, the one person whose feedback he forwarded to me uh, who disagreed with him. I thought put forth arguments, although they may not be sound, were better than the argument in um, the article, which is, oh, we don't make enough points of margin to be able to uh, give you access to the code. Um, The person who emailed said, A, does the client have the skills or ability to work with the code? Are they going to essentially do damage to the programming because they think they're able to do something and they're actually not able to? So we're opening up a can of worms by giving them access to workings they may or not be able to may or may not be able to work with. Um, Also, the idea that this is the intellectual property of the programmer or the integrator, and I guess there could potentially be concern about that intellectual property making its way either to a competitor or to someone that would essentially damage the integrator's ability to make use of that intellectual property in the future for other clients. Um, Those, to me, whether or not they're sound, seem better than saying, oh, we don't make enough points of margin to give you the programming, so it's up to you. And, and I will agree with you, and I'll, I'll just address those at the very end once I give Jeremy and, and Tim an opportunity here. Jeremy, you're an integrator. Uh, when you do a control system, who owns who owns the code at the end of the job? My opinion, it's the client, right? They've hired us to do a job. We're doing the job. We're performing it. If I'm doing my job well, then I'm not concerned about them taking my code and giving it to somebody else. At the same time, um, it's not like this code is so easily just hey let's just install it on this job right i mean that's not really how that works right i mean we know that this stuff is just it's very customized for the individual individual jobs and 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 whatnot for there um i i don't know i mean i i could see the intellectual property argument when you're talking about the writing of advanced modules within the code right uh maybe there's there's an intellectual property argument to be made there uh, but I don't think it's for the code itself. Now, it's interesting enough that today, just this morning, my programmer for here came in to me and said, hey, we just got this new job. Um, we don't have the source code for that. It's not on the control system like I thought it would be. I'm like, oh, all right. Well, I know the other integrator that did it, who we got the job from, and 
I called them up and I know his stance on this too. And I said, Hey, you know, we got this project now. Can you send me over the code? I had it in 10 minutes. But they have the same stance that I have, partially because that's where I learned my stance on control system code, right? Because 10 years ago, I was in the other camp where it was like, no, you have to pay us to do it because I was in sales and I wanted to make the sale. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to pay him somebody else, right? But uh, like I said, I've I've come around to the fact that if I do a good job on that, who cares? You know what I mean? It's not the intellectual property of the individual components of that code. It's just source. It's just code for how it works. Uh, Tim, is there is it what what sort of IT or software uh, idea or software stance can can we kind of apply to this uh, part of the AV industry, or, or is there one? It's a good question. You got me thinking now. I mean, I would say I agree with the the panel on the subject. Just to start there, and I mean, there, to, to, if we rewind back to the beginning of this this discussion, back into IP and patents. There are other ways to protect something than holding it hostage from the person who who paid for it. And so, you know, I think uh, as an industry and 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 more broadly, um, as as we talked about, software is becoming more readily available, more ubiquitous. People have a set of expectations of what they should get when they buy an experience. The software is part of what drives that experience, and they've made that purchase. And and I think, frankly, unless it's made explicitly clear in the negotiations um, that the code isn't included, or you know, maybe there's a pricing model to be associated with that, whether or not somebody gets the code. But um, you know, just as a, as a manufacturer, we provide as much as reasonably possible. And, and uh, in order to make all of the systems work effectively to provide a great user experience for both the person designing and installing the system, as well as the people who are using the system, and we'll protect what we need to protect behind that um, in order to ensure a competitive advantage. And the excellent user experience, I think, is a really important thing. I mean, obviously, um, that is the focus now of our industry, from the Infocom to Avixa name change, et cetera. It's all about what the user experience is. And if we're having someone who is completely unhappy with their system, their system is essentially non-functional, nine months into the system's birth, that doesn't reflect well on our industry. It's certainly not aligned well with a user-centric focus, a user experience focus. So we can get into some of the philosophical and esoteric stuff, but it's also just a matter of do we have satisfied clients who will speak well on behalf of our industry and AV practitioners in general. And it sounds like in this case, they would not speak well, especially because they're being given the runaround. No, you have to speak to him. No, speak to her. Speak to him. It's I'm not responsible. You're responsible. It's really kind of the worst picture of our industry. Yeah, I think, and, and if, if the industry doesn't support it and provide the experience, some of the digital giants out there will continue to build it into their technology, their capabilities, further eliminating um, the opportunity we have within AV, and, and as Jeremy mentioned before, kind of build it into a TV and make meeting spaces a single box you hang on the wall. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that is going to do it for us. I have so much more to say. It's not even funny, but we're up against time. So uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, Mr. Jeremy Caldera, thank you, sir. How do uh, people find you? Uh, IASTechnology.net, or you can get me on the Twitter, which is uh, at Jeremy underscore Caldera. All right, very good. Mr. Trost, thank you, sir. How do people find you or uh, LeGrand AV or Middle Atlantic? Thank you. Um, you can find us at legrandav.com and see our portfolio of brands there, including Mid-Atlantic. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Timothy Trost. 
All right, very good. And Ms. Farisi, thank you, sir, so much. It was it was a pleasure to have you. Like I said, I've been trying to get you on for a while, and I'm glad that we can make it happen. How do people find you or Sound of Communications? Sure, soundandcommunications.com, very uh, unique web URL, and uh, on social media, it's sound and com. All right, very good. My name is Tim Albright. Don't follow me on the Twitters because uh, the Bears are still winning-ish mostly. Uh, so that's what you'll get uh, get from me is, is cheering on the Bears. Uh, but go by the website, avnation.tv. Avnation.tv, you'll find this program and a host of others, including our weekly, our other weekly program, Resi Week, looks at the Resi residential side of the AV industry. Um, also, while you're there, um, check out uh, our, our third annual Aviation Awards. Uh, we do it a little bit differently than, than some folks. There's there's two steps to this. So the month of December, you get to nominate your favorite manufacturers in education and in training and in this, that, and the other. So you can go by the website, nominate your your favorites, uh, and then at the end of the month, we will compile all of the the top vote getters for that, and then uh, you will vote in in January next. We're going to do kind of a bracket system every week for that. So check that out. Uh, also uh, check out. Uh, we have our, our next webinar is January 16th on AV network security. Also, while you're there, uh, check out our supporting section. Uh, these are the companies that support us financially, help us bring you AV Week and Resi Week and ISE in two months. And Middle Atlantic is one of those. So we thank them for their support. So check all that out and more at avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV Week. 